What field of quantum physics studies guitars and guitar tone? String theory. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy, famous artists I'll never be able to play like, and topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Alright guys, so NAM 2023 is going on right now, so I'm sure y'all can already expect our big news this week. It's just going to be a whole bunch of product releases, and I've got to say, uh, really I'm pretty impressed. Like, I'm excited to talk about these, but if you're looking for drama in the guitar world like we had last week, you're probably not going to find it in this episode. Ah, it's going to be alright. We'll get over it. There's cool stuff we got to talk about first. So to start this week off, I'm sure you guys know that I'm not really an acoustic player, but I've got to give Fishman some props here with their new line of mini pedals designed for acoustic guitarists. And I know, I know, like, Fishman isn't just known for making acoustic stuff. They make those super awesome Fluence pickups, but usually when I see their name come up, it's for some sort of acoustic preamp or another one of their Loudbox acoustic amps. And those are really good quality. I mean, my dad has one of the the Loudbox amps, and I'm really impressed with it, especially for, you know, somebody that wants to do like a busking style event or performance at maybe like a restaurant or a small venue. They're great for that. Now, that being said, in this new lineup, there are four pedals voiced specifically for acoustic guitars. We've got a preamp, a looper, a reverb, and essentially a signal mixer. While they sound pretty simple, Uh, like they're pretty simple standard effects. What sets these apart for me is the fact that they're loaded with some really unique features that you don't often see in pedals, and they're extremely affordable to boot. So the preamp is what I'm most excited about. Let's start with that. Here we've got two big knobs, one for output level and one for input trim. The trim is something that I haven't really seen on a lot of pedals, and I can't find a lot of information about it right now, but it seems like it's trying to set something up internally, possibly with the impedance to integrate the pedal with your specific pickup system on your guitar. A lot of acoustics, uh, some of them can have magnetic pickups like the Squire Acoustic or the Fender Acoustasonic series. Some of them can have piezo pickups, some of them can have active or passive pickups. It's all a lot different, and the impedance can really make a difference with how it impacts with your gear that you're running your guitar into. The only thing I've really seen that's like this on a more conventional guitar pedal is the relax and push knob on like the Zvex Mastertron, and that adjusts the impedance between passive and active pickups, and that ends up being super useful on that pedal, so I'm sure this works extremely well. In this preamp, you have five sliders, a low cut to reduce rumble, a brilliance slider to add high-end brightness at the very shimmery ends of your tone, and your standard three-band bass, middle, and treble EQ in between. You've also got the ability to invert the phase of the signal by holding the foot switch down for three seconds, something that can be extremely useful for live performances and for busking. And if you want to use this preamp as a mute, sort of like how a lot of people use their tuner pedals, you can also set it up that way. Super cool. Everybody needs a good acoustic reverb to flesh out their acoustic tone and to give it some depth, and the Acoustiverb seems like it's geared just for that. 
It's got three reverb algorithms, spring, plate, and hall, as well as three control knobs for reverb level to mix into your signal, tone, and decay times. The Acoustiverb also has a tails mode, which allows your reverb to continue decaying even after you turn the effect off, so it's perfect for when you need large amounts of spacious reverb for certain sections of a song, but you're relying on the natural reverb of your space for the rest of your performance. This one seems like a pretty standard reverb pedal, but, you know, I'm pretty impressed with it still, especially when we get to the special feature that all of these have when we get to the end here. Now the looper is the third one, and, well, I mean, it's a looper. I understand Fishman wanting to release this along with the rest of their stuff, considering how often acoustic players use loopers, but many people already have something like a 360 or a Ditto or a Boss RC5 that they're really happy with. This looper does have a pretty long record time, it's about 6 minutes to be exact, so uh, I'll 100% give them props for that. It's also got a sampler mode, so if you want to record a phrase and only have it play back once instead of worrying about trying to stop the looper when it's finished, you've got that option available to you as well. The looper also has a USB-C port, so you can transfer WAV files to and from your computer, but the interface on the pedal is a little um, lacking, I guess. I feel like for an acoustic guitarist, you may have multiple loops you want to use during a performance, and having some sort of screen to select different audio files for different loops would be really nice. This pedal really only has a, a single knob for the volume of the playback and the toggle switch to swap between looping and sampling. It's a nifty little pedal, and I'm sure it has its uses, but I could see people going with something that's got a little more control and a little more feature heavy. The last one in this line is called the Pocket Blender, and it's basically an AB pedal on steroids. I mean, I was waiting to mention one key function of these pedals until we got to this one because it sort of ties them together. So if you use TRS cables, each of these pedals can output its affected signal to either the tip or the ring of the cable, allowing you to create any sort of wet-dry configuration you need between two amps. Normally, this would need to be controlled by setting the volumes onto individual amps, but with a pocket blender, you can get a similar effect using only a single amp. Now, I know that sounds kind of confusing, so here's a little example. The pocket blender has two settings called A and B. Let's say you want the looper signal to be very loud and out front in one song, but much more quiet in the next. With a reverb, you want the opposite. You need it to be very quiet in the first song, but very pronounced in the second. So you set the looper to output to the tip, and the reverb to output to the ring. On the Pocket Blender's A setting, you have the looper signal on the tip section pretty loud, and the reverb signal on the ring section very quiet. Then on the B setting for the second song, you reverse those settings. Now at the push of a button, you can switch between two effects level configurations without having to mess with your pedal board mid-song, just hitting one foot switch. It's got a few different mixing options where you can set the foot switch to some both the A and the B settings or just one. You can even mute your signal with a foot switch too. It's got two outputs, one for the affected signal and the other for just running direct so you can get your uncluttered sound out to a recording device or a mixing board without any fuss. I know that's a whole plethora of features, but each of these pedals also has the capability to switch between true bypass and buffered. There's a lot going on here. It took me uh, quite a bit of manual diving just to begin to understand the whole signal routing features that they've got going on, but they seem really useful. Now, fair warning, I'm about to contradict myself here, so just be prepared for that. While I think the TRS dual signal processing is probably the high point feature-wise for these pedals, 
It's also something that kind of turns me off to these as well, because to take advantage of that feature, you really have to stay within Fishman's ecosystem. If you have any other effects you like to use, and you need to put them in between something like their preamp EQ or the Pocket Blender, the whole point of the Pocket Blender is null and void now, because you're running it through a pedal that doesn't pass signal like that. If it were me, and I needed to use some sort of effect that they didn't have in this line, I'd probably just opt for like a cheap little mixer instead of the Pocket Blender, and use that to adjust everything in between songs. It's kind of like the whole reason I use Cubase over Pro Tools. It's a lot easier for me to run pretty much whatever equipment I want with Cubase, but with Pro Tools, you've really got to stick with Avid's ecosystem, and it makes things needlessly difficult sometimes. With that little bit of criticism out of the way, I still think they're great pedals for people that primarily play acoustic and don't need any wilder modulation or time-based effects. Not to mention, they're dirt cheap too for what they are. All the pedals in this line are 119 bucks, except for the Pocket Blender, which is just 89 bucks. You could have a whole acoustic pedal board for just about 500 bucks, uh, with all kinds of signal routing and switching options. And I gotta say, that in itself is pretty neat. The next cool big thing to come out of NAMM 2023 has been Rev's uh, Dynamis 25 amplifier. If you guys aren't familiar with Rev, they're a Canadian amplifier and pedal manufacturer that's risen to immense popularity over the last few years on the backs of their generator series of amplifiers. Now the generators are just great. They've got four total channels, one of them being clean, three of them having various amounts of uh, gain and a plethora of different tone shaping controls. But Rev have also released a few more affordable lunchbox style amp heads, including the high gain G20 based on the generator's purple channel, and it's a lower gain D20 based on the generator's green channel. Rev used NAM to announce the Dynamis 25, a combo amplifier based on the D20 that expands on the feature set found in the head. This amp has controls for gain, a 3-band EQ, volume, and a built-in reverb. It's got toggle buttons for an integrated gain boost, a 25-watt to 5-watt attenuator, an integrated speaker load box using two-notes technology, as well as an output level and six virtual cabinets you can choose from. Rev says it's meant to be like the uh, the big brother to the D20 head, and then it's more of a pedal platform amp designed for session musicians who need a clean to low gain sort of thing. I know Rev works quite a bit with Sean Tubbs, and they claim that this amp was designed specifically with him in mind, so if you like that Nashville session artist kind of thing, this is going to be right up your alley. And, and Sean Tubbs does a great job of demoing it. Like you can see for yourself in the videos they put out about it. He was there at the NAM booth. He really knows how to make this amp work. Speaking of their relationship with uh, Sean Tubbs, you might've seen Rev's Tilt Overdrive. It's uh, Sean's signature pedal. It's a two foot switch combination boost and overdrive with a tilt style EQ. Well, Rev also announced at NAM that they're releasing just the boost side of the pedal in a much smaller format. That way, if you've got a favorite overdrive already, and you just want one side of the tilt overdrive, you've got it available to you without any redundancy. The tilt boost does expand on its lineage just a bit. It's got the same boost knob, but instead of having just 12 decibels of boost, you've now got 20 decibels on tap, as well as a drive switch that pushes the pedal into saturation if you want to add just a tad bit of clipping on the boost. The tight switch from the original is still present, and it has a low-cut filter for you to knock out some of your bass frequencies. And of course, the Till EQ is still the highlight of this circuit. Both of these should be out in two weeks, according to the Rev booth, so if you're looking for something to keep an eye out on their website, or at your favorite guitar shop. 
Okay, so this last one is something really unique. A few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now actually, I don't know, I brought up how I got my first travel guitar and everything. And before this, I'd usually bring a guitar with me, and if I had to put it in a bag, I'd bring a bolt-on neck guitar and just take the neck off. Well, of course, this is a problem, because you've got to loosen the strings up, or you've got to take them off entirely to do this, and it's a huge hassle, because constantly taking tension off your strings and then tightening them back up causes them to break more often. Well, Nashville Luthier Ciari apparently has the solution to this with a folding travel guitar that has the ability to fold and unfold, all while keeping your strings in tune. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So this thing is a fold in the neck at about the 12th fret, and the neck literally folds in half back over the body of the guitar, breaking down to a total length of 18 and a half inches. Looking at the front of the guitar, it looks pretty bland. Honestly, if you covered up the headstock, it might even look some look like something out of like a first act catalog. But the back of this thing is where it starts to get weird. The body has a huge cutout in the center of the back, sort of like where the spring cavity is on tremolo-equipped guitars, and it's a whole sort of balance system that allows the bridge to move forward and backwards, which, as Ciari claims, is what allows the strings to stay in tune when you fold and unfold the guitar to play it. The thing that I really like about this, though, is that unlike a lot of travel guitars, you don't really seem to be making many sacrifices here in terms of features. For one, the guitar actually has a headstock. Yeah, it's got traditional tuners and everything. No more getting your uh, snip string ends stuck on your shirt with the tuners mounted inside the body. It's also got locking tuners to boot for quicker string changes. You've got a Seymour Duncan brand P90 as your single pickup, a single volume and tone knob, a rolling two pneumatic bridge, a full-size comfortable looking offset basswood body, a mahogany neck with an ebony fingerboard, and 22 frets on a 24.75 inch Gibson style scale length. The whole thing weighs about 7 pounds all in all, and honestly seems like a dream of a traveler guitar, but the price tag is still sitting at around 1600 bucks. All good things have a catch, I guess. Either way, it was super cool to see the travel guitar concept be taken to new heights, rather than something that looks like an awkward Steinberg face. I feel like guitar is one of those hobbies that can inspire pretty fierce brand loyalty in people. Usually you'll see a lot of memes where people are constantly duking it out between big names like Fender and Gibson, and while I try to stay pretty neutral on the podcast, this week I figured I'd throw my two cents into the whole discussion, and we talk about the history of my favorite brand of guitar, Schecter. The first guitar that I actually bought with my own money was a Schecter Demon 6. I remember our closest guitar center was in Winter Park, and I'd finally saved up enough money and begged my mom to drive me over there so I could pick up something a little nicer than the starter kit guitar they'd gotten me for Christmas a couple years prior to that. I didn't really know what I was looking for at that time. If I remember correctly, I knew I wanted something with active pickups that played a little better than the GWL I had. So we walked in there, and I probably did my whole deal where I tried a bunch of different guitars and sat there for hours playing the same basic drop D metal riffs that the Guitar Center employees heard day in and day out. But I walked out of there with a Schecter Demon 6 because it had active pickups, had a cool name, and was probably one of the most comfortable guitars that I'd played in the whole store that day. Ever since then, Schecter has been one of those brands that's always really sat with me. It's been years since I sold my Demon 6, but I always find myself going back to them when I wanted something that I felt at home with, and I've had a few throughout the course of my life, 
and I've currently got a C1 Platinum and a C1 Plus that I use for a lot of my noodling because they're just insanely comfortable. Not to mention, they're really great bang for your buck. I think the C1 Platinum I picked up for like 500 bucks a couple years ago, and it's got a set of EMGs in it, Grover tuners, really great hardware, a satin finish with a flame maple top, a carved heel set neck, and a graphite nut. All really premium features that you'd be paying a lot more for if you bought something like an Ibanez or an ESP or a Jackson. A lot of times, people can be turned off by the country of origin for some of these guitars, and a lot of these low to mid-price Schecters are made in Korea. But I can tell you, they're on par with almost any American guitar that I've paid, played quality-wise. In fact, when I took a trip to Korea back in 2020, I met the owner of the factory where the Korean-made Schecters are produced. He's got his own company called Karis Music, and it was a little wild walking into his retail storefront. Uh, the store was up in this city up north called Dongducheon. It's about 20 minutes from Seoul by train. Because you see these Korean-made C1s sitting on the shelf for like 550,000 won. It's roughly 430 bucks uh, US dollars. And right next to them, you see the exact same guitar, but with Karis on the headstock and unbranded pickups for like 250,000 won. Honestly, I was just tempted to pick up like three of them then and there. So I talked to him for the better part of an hour or so. Granted, most of it was just you know, playing some form of charades because my Korean is worse than my cold open jokes. Yeah, the language barrier was pretty bad, but he's got a really complex operation going on that rivals the American factories that I've seen with a level of quality that you would be blown away by. All in all, it was a cool experience that cemented my trust in the brand and their factory over there in Incheon. So let's talk about the history of Schechter Guitars. Schechter Guitar Research was founded in Van Nuys, California in 1976 by a man named David Schechter. During the early 70s, David had cut his teeth working as a repairman for Fender and Gibson and working in the engineering department of Randall Amplifiers. David decided to start his own business as a guitar repair shop that manufactured replacement bodies, necks, pickguards, pickups, bridges, tuners, all kinds of guitar parts that you could use to either assemble your own or fix what you already had. Most of these parts were made based on the designs of contemporary Fender guitars due to the relative ease with which you could take apart, like a Tele or a Strat, and replace parts. And there's conflicting accounts as to whether or not Schecter actually supplied Fender factories with parts. When I got into contact with Schecter for information on this episode, they had no specific stance on that question, which uh, is interesting to me. I don't know why they would uh, avoid that. In 1979, Schechter began to sell very limited runs of custom shop guitars that were extremely high-priced and based on those Fender designs. The brand really started to pick up steam throughout the late 70s and early 80s as Pete Townshend of The Who began playing Schechter custom shop tele-style guitars uh, live up through the year 1988. David Schechter's small California shop started, to quote DJ Khaled, suffering from success. And they weren't able to keep up with the orders that they were receiving for their custom shop models. So the company was sold in 1983 to a Dallas-based investment group who relocated the factory to Texas and began to mass-produce guitars with a pretty mixed bag of parts between lower-quality import hardware and the old Schecter hardware that was made in the California factory. As you could probably guess, this led to a drop in quality. 
But the mass production also caught the attention of Fender, who opened a lawsuit against Schechter for continuing to use the Strat and Tele-style headstocks on their production guitars instead of just the replacement necks. This lawsuit was ultimately too much for the investment group, and they sold the company in 1987 to Japanese businessman Hisatake Shibuya. Shibuya wanted to bring Schechter back to its roots, so he moved the company back to California. Now, this wasn't Shibuya's first rodeo with running a guitar company either. In 1975, he'd founded Electric Sound Produ Products, also known as ESP, in Tokyo, Japan, doing the same thing the Schechter shop had started out with, making repair parts for popular guitar models of the time and manufacturing limited, full-production copycat guitars under their own brand name. Shibuya wanted Schechter to get back into the higher-priced, premium instrument side of the market, so he transitioned back into making more expensive instruments while using ESP as an OEM sort of manufacturer in order to reduce labor and manufacturing costs for the company. During Shibuya's ownership from 1987 to 1996, Schechter manufactured less than 40 guitars per month, and in 1996, Shibuya handed the company over to an employee named Michael Sirovolo, who had had some pretty big ambitions to distance the Schechter of the 90s from the Schechter of the last two decades. The first change that Sirovolo made had to do with Schechter's catalog. They were still largely producing Fender-style Stratocaster and Telecaster facsimiles, and presumably fearing another lawsuit, he spearheaded the development of brand new models like the Hellcat, the Tempest, and the Avenger. While the Hellcat takes obvious inspiration from the Fender Jaguar, including its really unique switchplate and offset body shape, the Tempest and the Avenger were new. They were aggressive-looking guitars with high-output humbuckers, bold finish choices, signature headstock designs, and a host of other features that set them apart from their roots. I'm sure in the 90s these were all the rage, but looking at old Schechter guitars from this era today, it sort of reminds me of a guy who walks into a college party with a backwards hat, tribal tattoos, ripped jeans, and a metal militia shirt. We all know who I'm talking about. He looks like Fred Durst. He's probably even got spiked frosted tips. That's, that's what this reminds me of. <laughs> so the second change that Sirovolo wanted to make was shifting back to a mass production factory while still retaining the custom shop that had carried the brand on its back. Now, of course, one of the largest costs in guitar manufacturing is labor, so this involved finding a factory that ideally wasn't in the United States to cut down on those costs. For the first two years of his leadership, Sirovolo hunted around and eventually settled on a factory in Incheon, South Korea, with the intention that Schechter guitars were built there, then sent to the United States for the final quality control inspections and setups. The new Korean-made lineup was known as the Diamond Series, and it was launched in 1998, being touted as a mass-produced, affordable line of Schechter guitars that still held the same quality as their custom shop counterparts. A few years later, they introduced the C1 model in 2000, with the release of Papa Roach's music video for Last Resort. Now my C1 Plus that I've got here was actually produced in the Korea factory during 2004, about six years into the line there. I'm honestly in love with this thing. It's one of the only guitars that I've sold and then frantically looked online and rebought the same model a few years later. But for some reason, they're dirt cheap, usually going for around 200 to 300 bucks every time I look for them. However, they're insanely good quality, especially when it comes to the feel of the neck and the fretwork. It originally came with Duncan design pickups that I replaced with a Duncan Distortion Mayhem set because I wanted something a little bit hotter 
And I did have to replace the tuners because one of them had some damage when I got it. So I replaced the whole set. But honestly, these are really sleeper guitars. If you're looking for a great guitar and don't want to spend a whole bunch of money, try to pick one up on Reverb. You'll definitely be happy with it. So Schechter stayed the course for about a decade with no major developments until 2012 when they expanded their U.S. custom shop and began to build a new line of mass production guitars in the United States. In 2013, Schechter announced that they were getting into the amplifier game by partnering with James Brown, the designer of the legendary PV5150, releasing two different 100-watt amps, the Hellraiser and the Hellwind. Each is both a head and a combo, with the Hellwind amp being the signature amp for Avenged Sevenfold guitarist Sinister Gates, who just so happens to be a Schechter artist with his signature guitar. The Hellwind amps are honestly something I remember being extremely interested in when they came out. They had 20 different control knobs on them, three different channels, each with their own EQ stacks and gain, a built-in noise gate, voicing between UK and US style amps, adjustable effects loop, I mean it didn't even had MIDI. They were crazy, and I remember being dead sure that they were going to take the guitar community by storm. Now, you simply can't find them anywhere, uh, Schechter doesn't make them anymore. The last one that I saw on Reverb sold for like 600 bucks or something a couple years ago, and this is why I don't trust myself to play around with speculative stuff like the stock market. <laughs> to this day, Schechter currently still produces over 30 different models of electric guitar with various sub-models within each one. They've also gotten into the acoustic guitar and the electric bass game. They've still got their custom shop in California, in addition to overseas factories in Korea, China, Indonesia, and Japan, but as it was before, all the guitars are still sent to the USA for final quality control and setup before they're shipped off to you. Now I know this section on gear history wasn't as information rich as we usually get, but truth be told, there really isn't a lot of info on Schecter out there. They're not really one of the larger companies, and it's pretty hard to track down records about them. Even getting into contact with Schechter themselves, they didn't seem to have all the answers about how or why certain development choices were made, which is disappointing, but I guess it's the name of the game. Maybe one day some guitar archaeologists, guitar archaeologists, will do some digging in Van Nuys and get us some more information. <laughs> However, if everything I've gone on about today has gotten you super excited and sold you on the idea of having one of the most Midwestern emo-looking guitars you can get on the market, there's a few great options you can pick up on a budget and end up with an instrument that's punching way above its price point feature-wise. So currently, Schechter's most budget-friendly model is the Omen 6 at $499. It's got a basswood body, bolt-on maple neck, rosewood fingerboard, 24 frets, and Schechter-branded hardware to include double humbuckers, a tunematic bridge, and 15 to 1 ratio tuners. While OEM hardware may not necessarily be anything to write home about, once again, the quality of work on these guitars is what really shines. They just feel more solid than other guitars at this price point, in my opinion. For 749 bucks, god, really due to inflation, <laughs> uh, things really start to get good with the C1 Platinum. Here you've got a mahogany body, flame maple top, maple neck, rosewood fingerboard, EMG 8185 pickups, graph tech nut, and Grover tuners. This thing is an absolutely killer guitar. I use it as my main drop C-tune guitar. It's got an extremely fast playing neck, super smooth jumbo frets. It's a great choice overall. For $8.99, you can get back to Schechter's roots as a Fender-style instrument manufacturer with a Nick Johnston signature Schechter. 
While 899 bucks is really starting to push the high end of what could be considered budget, in my experience, these rival the two grand American-made Fender Strats with an alder body, a roasted maple neck, ebony fingerboard, Nick Johnston signature pickups, locking tuners, and a super smooth two-point style tremolo. If you want a really high-quality Strat, you can't go wrong with this. Now, I know a lot of people in the guitar community sort of rag on Machine Gun Kelly, and while he's not the focus here, his signature guitar from Schecter isn't really something to be sneered at. I've got a thing for non-traditional colored guitars, and this thing is really eye-catching being hot pink and all. It's got an alder body, maple neck with carbon fiber reinforcement, ebony fingerboard, glow-in-the-dark side markers, a Schecter custom pickup, a Graftech nut, and locking tuners for just under a grand. And all those models are just the brand new ones. You can constantly find Schecters on the used market for much less than that and save a ton of money while still getting a really great quality instrument. I know I sound like I'm shilling out for a brand here, but I really just think a lot of people don't consider Schecter as an option for some reason, and it's a pretty big shame. You know, in fact, on second thought, don't buy any of their guitars. They're all terrible. Don't give them a chance. Save them for me. If you have one, just shoot me a DM. I'll give you my address. You can send it to me, and I'll throw it away for you to make things easier. <laughs> Since we're on a bit of a nostalgia kick for me, talking all about Schecter, I figured we'd go into one of the bands that really inspired me to play guitar when I was growing up, none other than the California-based rock band Linkin Park. Linkin Park currently consists of vocalist and guitarist Mike Shinoda, guitarist Brad Delson, bassist Dave Farrell, DJ Joe Hahn, and drummer Rob Borden. Of course, I'd be remiss not to mention the late, great Chester Bennington, former vocalist of the band who passed away in 2017. Linkin Park style originally started as a sort of staple of the late 90s, early 2000s alternative rock scene while incorporating elements of hip-hop, they eventually shifted to include more aspects of electronic music in their later albums. Linkin Park was founded in Agora Hills, California in 1996 after Shinoda, Borden, and Delzin graduated high school and joined up with Han and Farrell to form a band called Zero, which produced most of their early recordings in Shinoda's bedroom. Delson brought their self-titled demo to Jeff Blue, who worked for Zomba Music, but ultimately didn't sign them. Blue continued to support the band and recommended they recruit Chester Bennington in 1999. The band changed their name to Hybrid Theory, and shortly after, they were signed by Blue, now working for Warner Brothers, again changing their name to Lincoln Park, a play on Santa Monica's Lincoln Park. In 2000, the band released their debut album, Hybrid Theory, much to the contention of Warner Bros. officials who didn't really like the hip-hop blended with rock. But the band became the best-selling album of 2001 with over 4.8 million copies, winning a Grammy for its song Crawling and earning two other Grammy nominations and two awards from MTV for the music video in the end. Linkin Park played over 300 concerts within a year after the release of Hybrid Theory, releasing a remix album titled Reanimation in 2002 that charted second on the U.S. Billboard charts. The band released their third album, Meteora, in early 2003, selling almost one million copies in its first week, further demonstrating the band's success and allowing the band to play in numerous worldwide and European tours throughout the next few years. Linkin Park leveraged their success to raise money for various charitable organizations such as Hurricane Relief Funds and the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. In 2008, the band released their next album, Minutes to Midnight, which saw their single What I've Done buying the band further attention with its use in the movie Transformers, a franchise the band would provide music for in the future. 
Their success allowed them even more opportunities to tour with large names like My Chemical Ronans, Chris Cornell, and Ashes Divide. The band's fifth album, A Thousand Sons, was released in late 2010, with the album being nominated for Billboard's Top Alternative Album the following year. The album was massively successful, but by comparison to their earlier success, it was a bit of a slump that didn't release to the same amount of fanfare as their earlier albums, especially seeing as it had a much more electronic pop-focused sound than their origins with Hybrid Theory and Meteora. Linkin Park released two more albums between 2012 and 2014, titled Living Things and The Hunting Party, and in 2015 they began working on their final studio album, One More Light. One More Light was released in May of 2017, and the band was shocked by the terrible news that Chester Bennington has taken his own life not even a month after the release of the album. To honor Bennington, Linkin Park played a show at the Hollywood Bowl in October of 2017 that saw numerous artists such as Alanis Morissette, M. Shadows, Oliver Sykes, John Green, and Blink-182 collaborate with him. The concert was over three hours long, and it was streamed live to YouTube, it's honestly a really great video if you guys want to watch it. I mean, seeing all those famous artists sing along with the rest of the band to these classic Linkin Park songs, it seemed like it was a great time, albeit for a very sad reason. Ever since Chester's death, Linkin Park has been on an indefinite hiatus with what seems to be as a self-described desire to not feel like they're replacing him. I can totally understand that. You live on the road with someone for years and they pass away. Of course, it must feel somewhat wrong to have someone new step in and fill their shoes, and I can't say I blame them. Since then, however, the band has been slowly releasing previously unheard demos recorded in their earlier albums and are currently releasing a re-release of Meteora for its 20th anniversary, slated to drop on April 7th. So this week, we'll be taking a look at recreating guitarist Brad Delson's tone on the song One Step Closer from their debut album. Brad Delson is a well-known user of PRS guitars, seeming to favor the CE24 models without any notable modifications. These typically go for about $2,500, and they feature PRS8515 pickups that have a coil tap option, maple neck, mahogany body, and a rosewood fingerboard. If you're looking for PRS feel and playability without American-made PRS prices, the imported PRS SE24 could be just what you're looking for. With a mahogany body, maple neck, rosewood fingerboard, overseas manufactured 8515S pickups, and a push-pull pop for coil tapping, this budget model holds nearly the same features, minus the locking tuners, of the CE24, but it's only 649 bucks. Now, since I didn't really get away to work in using Schecter in the last section, I figured now would be the perfect time to use one. I'll be using my Schecter C1 Plus, which, while it doesn't seem to be manufactured anymore, there's numerous examples of it on Reverb for just a little over 300 bucks, saving you even more money. These guitars come with a mahogany body and neck, rosewood fingerboard, Tone Pros hardware, Grover tuners, Duncan-designed HB-102 humbuckers, which are modeled after the Seymour Duncan JB Bridge and Jazz neck set. It's a perfect mid-output pickup pairing to work with this tone. Brad Delson typically uses an Angle Fireball 100, a high-gain tube amp with an integrated noise gate, clean channel and lead channel, bright and bottom toggles, 3-band EQ, master volume, and presence controls that sports 12AX7 preamp tubes, and 6L6GC power amp tubes for an aggressive, high-gain American voicing. At $1,900, it's a pretty steep price, but, you know, insert joke about German engineering and BMWs being expensive. Something like that. The parts are there, you guys can make something out of it. 
So if you've already got an amplifier, but it may just be lacking in the distortion apartment, you could always pick up Angle's Powerball distortion pedal based on the high gain channel from their flagship Powerball amp head. It's got a three band EQ, output control, and gain control, and follows the same circuit as the amp channel is based off of. At $229, it's sitting up there with other boutique amp and a box pedals like the Rev G series, but it's easily worth it if you want some searing high gain in a box and just want to run it into the return of your current amplifier. I'm feeling a little froggy today, so we're going to break out one of my favorite budget-friendly high gain amplifier heads, the PRS MT-15. This is actually Mark Tremonti of Alter Bridge's signature amplifier from PRS, but it's feature-packed with a clean channel that includes a push-pull boost on the treble pot, separate three-band EQs, a presence control, and loads of gain on tap for the lead channel. It's based off of Mark Tremonti's favorite amps, including the high-gain American-voiced amplifiers like the Mesa Boogie Tribble Rectifier, and it'll do a great job getting us the gain we need for this tone. I've set it with a bass at 6, middle at 4, and treble at 6 for light mid-scoop with the gain at 8 and the presence at 6. Let's give a listen. Now in the intro of One Step Closer, there's a very boxy mid-forward tone that sounds like the guitar track being played through an old transistor radio. Brad Delson uses the Ibanez LF7 Lo-Fi, one of Ibanez's 7 series pedals that functions as a sort of lo-fi filter drive. It's not the same as the lo-fi stuff that we've talked about earlier where it's got modulation, it's really just a mid-forward filter that adds some gain, and it's not in production anymore, but it typically sells used for right around 170 bucks. So here, I'm using the MXR 6-band EQ to approximate the effects of the lo-fi filter. Really, you could get away with almost any EQ pedal here as long as it has the ability to dial out a fair portion of the low and high frequencies while boosting the mids. So what I've done here is I've made a sort of bullet shape with the EQ faders, bringing the middle two frequency bands of 400 and 800 nearly to their maximum, setting the 200 and 1.6k faders to about halfway, and setting the 100 and the 3.2k faders all the way to the bottom. We're only leaving this on for the intro to get the transistor radio sound, as this setup will take the edge off of our high gain from our amp, and take the bass heavy chugs out of our palm mutes if we left it on for the rest of the song. In addition to our EQ pedal boosting our mid-frequencies, there seems to be just a slight bit of chorus to add a bit of double-tracking warbliness to the intro of the song. Brad Delson has stated he uses the Boss CE5 chorus, which goes for just about 159 bucks. And to save us a couple bucks here, I'm using the Electroharmonics Small Clone. For 107 bucks, you get a classic chorus effect in Electroharmonics' retro-style enclosure. We've set the rate knob just a hair above all the way down for a very slow throb, and have turned the depth toggle switch to the bottom for a less intense effect. 
Putting this in cahoots with our EQ pedal gives us the perfect sort of grainy tone that we need for the intro. Now, if you want to talk boutique boost pedals, Brad Delson uses the ZVEX super hard on out front of his amplifier to get just a little more natural sounding compression on the input of his amp. 259 bucks is a little pricey for a boost with such limited functionality. So here I've chosen the Walrus Audio Emissary. It's a parallel boost that goes for 169 bucks and allows us to boost the treble and the mid frequencies separately. We're kicking this on right after the end of the intro, after we turn off our chorus and our EQ pedals and it tightens up our signal when we set the bright knob to 9 o'clock, the mid knob to noon, and the frequency switch to 1 kilohertz. It'll give it just a little more bite on the gain and a little bit of that compression that we need to tighten up our signal. You know, not to mention the graphic on it is of a guy getting his head x-rayed, which seems like something that would be on a Linkin Park album. And as we all know, the best way to shop for pedals is to pick them based on the art. Don't, don't even worry about the sound. If they look cool, they're going to sound good. Pretty sure that's how it works. <laughs> well, well, that's it. So if you like this rig, you could pick it all up today for a total of $14.84, making for a savings of $35.03 over the original rig. Not bad at all. So for our recording tip this week, I thought I might talk about something that's extremely important but often overlooked. The difference between balanced and unbalanced audio signals. If you guys are anything like me, you may have wondered why XLR cables have three pins. After all, our guitar cables typically only have two connections, a tip and a sleeve, so why does an XLR have three? We know TRS cables may be used to carry a stereo signal. Would XLR be used for the same? The answer is sort of. You could use an XLR to carry a stereo signal if your equipment's jacks were wired up for it, but what XLR cables and many TRS cables are actually used for is to carry something called a balanced signal. You may have seen this term somewhere on your audio interface, your mixer, or in some of your hardware's manuals, but what does that actually mean? And more importantly, what does it do for you? Just like our guitar can pick up electromagnetic interference from things like lights, power, and other electronic devices, so can our cables. While a well-shielded cable can reduce the amount of noise introduced, it can never fully get rid of it, which is where balance signals come in. Going back to our XLR cables, why do they have three pins? Well, one, of course, is a ground, and the other two are your positive and negative, usually referred to as a hot and a cold. The hot pin functions as the tip would in a TS cable or a standard guitar cable. It carries your audio signal normally. Now on devices that are designed to output and receive a balance signal, the cold pin actually carries your audio signal, but flipped 180 degrees out of phase with the same signal traveling on the hot pin. But why would we ever do this? Well, 
If we take two audio signals that are exactly the same, and we flip one of them 180 degrees out of phase while placing them over top of each other, they both cancel out via something called destructive interference. Basically, where one waveform peaks, the other is the exact opposite, and troughs an equal amplitude in the opposite direction, causing the signal to amount to an even zero, and the audio would just be quiet. With balanced signals, the goal here is that your signal is flipped 180 degrees out of phase. As the signal travels along the cable, it picks up any electromagnetic interference like normal, but when the signal reaches the end of its run and the receiving device flips the cold pin 180 degrees back into phase with the hot pin signal, the noise introduced by the electromagnetic interference is flipped 180 degrees out of phase with the hot signal as well. Since the noise was introduced to both the hot and the cold at the same stage in phase, the flip now causes the two portions of the introduced noise to be exactly 180 degrees out of phase with each other, canceling out only the introduced noise and leaving your audio signal intact. This creates a much higher fidelity signal with a much higher signal to noise ratio than if you use a standard unbalanced signal. So now that we understand what balanced signals are doing, when and how should we incorporate these into our studio setups? First things first, we have to identify what types of cables are capable of transmitting balanced signals. The most common types of cables to carry balanced signals are of course XLR cables and TRS cables. TRS cables are easy to differentiate from TS cables. While they may look similar, if you pay close attention to the ends of your cable, a TS cable will have only one ring on the end, creating a partition between the tip and the sleeve portion of the mail jack, while the TRS cable will have two rings creating partitions between the tip, ring, and sleeve portions of the mail jack. If your quarter-inch cable can be used for stereo, it can also carry a balanced signal. TS cables do not carry a balanced signal. Same with your red and white RCA cables, standard clamp speaker wire, speak-on cables, and commercial banana-style plugs. These cables will only carry an unbalanced connection as they only have contacts for a hot and a ground. Now for most applications, especially with short runs of cable less than 15 feet or so, noise introduced by electromagnetic interference will most likely be negligible, i.e. you don't have to worry about it. We're not too concerned with devices like home audio speaker system setups and the like, but as our cables get longer, or if our device producing the current gets weaker, such as a microphone, the introduced noise becomes much more apparent as it has either more space to enter the cable or we have to boost the volume so much that the noise is boosted along with it. I know this was a real short and sweet recording tip, but it's often something that's overlooked or misunderstood, and I hope it cleared anything up for you if you were confused on that. I mean, after all, we all deserve balance in our lives, especially in our audio tracks. Yeah, yeah, okay. I get it. I get it. No more dad jokes. Jeez. Tough crowd. Did you guys know that XLR plugs actually go all the way back to 1915? Yeah, the XLR cable was actually invented by a man named James H. Cannon in 1915, and was originally called the Cannon X Connector, which frankly sounds much more cool than just XLR. Eventually, in 1955, a latch was added to the top of the connector for added stability, and cables that included this feature were dubbed Cannon XL connectors. In 1955, the Canon XLR connector was born with the addition of neoprene insulation to the cable, with Canon's XLPs having plastic insulation instead of that neoprene. 
It seems like over time, the term XLR just became synonymous with the cable itself, sort of like how we call fabric adhesive bandages band-aids, or how we, how we call hook-and-loop fasteners Velcro, even though those are technically specific brands. I know it's super nerdy, but I find that stuff cool, and I hope you guys do too. You know what would actually be really nerdy, though? Wearing a pocket protector. But never fear. I've got a way to ensure that you never suffer the ridicule that comes with that. You could get your very own Pedals and Pickups podcast t-shirt. It doesn't have a pocket, so there's nowhere to even put a pocket protector. And best of all, if you shoot me an email or a DM on any one of my socials, you'll be entered to win a t-shirt for free at the end of the month. Just let me know what your favorite piece of budget gear is and why you like it. And if you don't want to roll the dice, that's cool too. Just head over to my Spring merch store and you'll be able to pick one up yourself for less than the price of the International Space Station. Like, a lot less. <laughs> Alright, reach out over Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, or email me at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com to suggest topics, uh, ask for advice, or just chat about gear. I'm happy to talk with you guys. I love spending time with you. I love interacting with you. Please, reach out if you got anything. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. It's been another great week in the bag. Uh, I know it's kind of dry sound demo-wise, but I appreciate you guys sticking through it with me. All important stuff that we got to talk about, about our favorite hobby, guitars. Anyway... Uh, my exciting stuff is still in the works. It should be here pretty soon. So maybe not the next episode, but the one after that, we'll have something that I'm really passionate and excited to talk to you guys about and share with you. But until then, take care. And don't forget to wash your hands. Yeah, sure. I guess that's, that's important, right? Wash your hands. Okay. Bye.